0: Hear now the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presents? Which is, it is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who are with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath." The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever." When I was growing up, I was absolutely fascinated by the people and the places and the history and the institutions of the United States government. Uh, For a long time, I I wanted to go into politics because I wanted to have direct access, a, a front row seat to see how some of the most momentous events that shape the course of our nation take place. It's really interesting to think about the access that citizens of the United States have to the government, although this has changed over the years. Back in the presidency of Abraham Lincoln, uh, President Lincoln established time every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, either two or three hours, a total of 13 hours every week, that anyone could come in off the street and have a direct audience with the President of the United States. He kept that up uh, throughout his presidency. Of course, when President Lincoln was assassinated, There's a recognition. Maybe it's not safe to just let anyone come into the presence presence of the president. And so there were restrictions that were then put on that access. Well then you fast forward a little bit later and even for quite a while there was a significant amount of free access to the president, so much so that on November 22, 1963, as President John F. Kennedy drove through the streets of Dallas He was in an open convertible, which allowed an easy target for a sniper to murder him on that day. It was a terrible day. But it's hard to imagine today even that kind of unfettered access to the president, because when our president travels, he travels essentially in a tank. Uh, We want to keep him safe. Well, even in my day, and I'm not that old, but in my day, I've seen a major shift in this happen. Um, When I was in high school, I had the opportunity to go to Washington D.C. And again, I found all this stuff fascinating. The group I was with uh, was able to get a tour of the United States Capitol building. And because our tour came on a Saturday, we were able to actually take part in this tour by sitting on the floor in the seats of the House of Representatives. And as a young geek, I mean, this just blew my mind. This is where the State of the Union addresses happened. This is where President Roosevelt gave his day of infamy speech. I was there in the room where it happened. It was amazing. But that Saturday was September 8th, 2001, and three days later was 9-11, and once again there was a new round of restrictions keeping people further back from access to the people and the places and the institutions of the government. Now it's important to understand that the point really is for citizens to have access to the positions of power. We don't want a king who is far separated from us. We have a government that is of the people, by the people, and for the people. The point is to have access to these. Unless you are on the Secret Service, you probably recognize this. The Secret Service wants complete restrictions. They don't want anyone coming anywhere near the president because they're responsible for his safety. That's understandable. But everyone understands that access is actually a very important thing. Now, I want to think about that tension between access and restriction access and restriction from access, as we think about what Jesus is talking about on the Sabbath. Because when we start talking about the Sabbath, very often our minds instantly go to the question of restrictions. How much can we do? How much can't we do? This person says we can do this, but this person says that's too much. What can I do? What can't I do? Boil it down to me. Give me the law. I want to know how to live according to the Sabbath. But when Jesus comes into the world, he recognized that he had a world, that the the religious leaders of that time, the Pharisees of that time, had twisted the Sabbath so that it was entirely about the restrictions, entirely about what you couldn't do on the Sabbath, so much so that the people of his day had lost complete sight of the overall goal of the Sabbath. The goal of the Sabbath day is that this is a day that God has set apart as holy to the Lord. What else did God set apart as holy to the Lord? His tabernacle, his temple, the place where God gave access of himself to his people. And so this is the day that God has set apart as holy to give us access to him. Access is the goal, not restrictions. Well, our big idea as we think about what Jesus does to purify the Sabbath, to free the Sabbath from unnecessary restrictions and to restore to his people access To God Almighty, our big idea this morning is this. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. So the first thing, or the, the, the first thing we're going to look at this morning are the prohibitions of the Sabbath. The prohibitions of the Sabbath. The second thing we're going to look at this morning is the purpose of the Sabbath, the purpose of the Sabbath. And then third, we're going to look at the progression of the Sabbath, the progression of the Sabbath. So first of all, the prohibitions of the Sabbath in verses 1 and 2 of this passage. We read, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Now, the phrase at that time is not very precise. Uh, you You might say around that time, somewhere near that time. We're not exactly sure what the connection is of that time and what immediately came before, because Matthew is not organizing the telling of his gospel in this particular section according to strict chronology. What Matthew has in view, rather, is the theme. If you remember what Matthew has just been telling us about, about the life of Jesus, in the previous three verses, right before we get to our chapter, Jesus promised one of the most precious promises in all of his lifetime. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Right after Matthew tells us about Jesus promising us rest, immediately then we come upon this story, this test case of the Sabbath. What Matthew is showing us here is that if we want to understand the rest that Jesus gives uh, his people... We cannot set the Sabbath aside. Some people look at this passage and say that Jesus is abolishing the Sabbath. He's actually not. We need to look closely to this. Jesus is telling us that the Sabbath plays a crucial part in the rest that God is going to give to his people because there yet remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, as the author of Hebrews tells us. But how then will Jesus give that rest that he promises? Well, again, the test case comes as Jesus and his disciples walk through this grain field and we read that his disciples were hungry... And they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. Now, that might not seem like a good idea should you really walk through someone else's grain fields and just start taking from their field and eating it. Um, I don't believe the law permits that today, but the law of the Old Testament permitted that in the past, in the Old Covenant. Um, You couldn't sort of bring harvesting equipment and start harvesting someone else's field and then selling it as your own. But as a way for God to provide mercifully for the needs of his people, even the poorest among them, he made provision that as you're walking through the grain field, you can take and eat whatever you need. That was one of the ways that God provided for all his people, even the poorest among them. So the disciples were within their bounds, within the law, to take and pluck heads of grain and eat. The question comes about when they are doing this. Is this lawful to do on the Sabbath day? And that's what the Pharisees point out in verse 2. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what it is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, clearly what the law, the law was very clear about the fact that harvesting on the Sabbath. Again, you couldn't harvest from your neighbor's grain field, but neither, even if it was your grain field, could you harvest if the day was the Sabbath. And so the question became to the Pharisees, okay, if harvesting is wrong on the Sabbath, then clearly this kind of an activity where someone is going and plucking grains of, 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 uh, heads of grain for them to eat immediately, well, that must be harvesting and therefore that is work and therefore that runs afoul of the command, you shall do no work on the Sabbath. What the Pharisees were doing were focusing on the prohibitions of the Sabbath. They were focusing on the restrictions of the Sabbath day. And indeed, if we look back in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, there is much written about the restrictions, the prohibitions that God gave for his people in regard to the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment says this, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You Or your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So for the Pharisees, Sabbath-keeping was defined exclusively about what people didn't do. That is, Sabbath-keeping was defined exclusively by not working. And that was the whole shebang. That was everything. That was the entirety of what they were looking at. Did you sufficiently follow the prohibitions? Did you sufficiently observe the restrictions of the Sabbath? And what that meant is that the Pharisees were evaluating Sabbath-keeping based, based on outward observance only, outward ceremony only. What Jesus is doing in this passage he shifting the focus away from ceremony and toward substance, away from prohibition and toward the purpose of the Sabbath, away from restrictions and toward the access to God afforded to us on this holy day that the Lord has blessed. So what does the Bible say about the purpose of the Sabbath? This is what Jesus is trying to get our attention to. Well, the fact is that God has set apart one day in seven as holy. And he does this in order to teach us to delight in him. This is very clear in Isaiah chapter 58, verses 13 through 14. Again, a precious promise is given us there in Isaiah 58. The Lord says, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." You see, it is a formalistic, ritualistic, hypocritical religion that focuses exclusively on the ceremonies. Are you sufficiently resting? I'm not going to rest until I make sure that you rest sufficiently. Do you see how that totally upends things? Whereas Jesus is not looking at the hassle, not looking at the regulations, not looking at the prohibitions. Jesus isn't questioning whether you do the right actions and the right words at the right time in the right format, the right length, according to the right appearance. That's burdensome. That's legalistic. It's not restful. Jesus rather focuses our attention on the purpose of the Sabbath. This is a day set apart to delight in God to learn to delight in him. Jesus is emphasizing not the external ceremony, not so much what we do with our bodies, although that isn't entirely unrelated. We'll have to talk about that. But he is rather emphasizing, prioritizing the heart, what is spiritual and restful. And because of that, what Jesus offers us is not burdensome legalism. He holds out to us joy on the Sabbath. He holds out to us access to God that he, the Son of God, has come to restore to us. You know, a few months ago, it was, it was August 2nd, 2022, um, I preached earlier in the Gospel of Matthew on Matthew chapter 6 uh, in verses 16 through 18 on the question of fasting. Um, the big idea that day was that God's economy rewards secret obedience That is, that God wasn't interested in the external ceremonies, the outward way that we would do fasting. He was interested in the secret communion that we have with God. So the question is less about what you do and how long you do it and whether you don't eat. The question wasn't defined according to what you don't do. The question was defined is, is your fasting something where you were trying to get the approval of other people? Look how much I am suffering for the Lord by my fasting. Or was it rather to enjoy secret communion and fellowship access to God. Well, that very next day, um, my car was in the shop. I had to go pick up my car from the shop. I had to get an Uber to get a ride over there. And if you've ever been in an Uber, it's like a taxi cab kind of a thing. Normally, the Uber drivers, they know that you're going to rate them after the end of the, after the, end of the drive. And so uh, they provide some kind of easy listening radio or they don't have anything on at all. And they talk to you about where you're from and all that kind of thing. This guy was totally different. First of all, I stepped in and it was blaring. Someone was talking and it was super loud. And I realized what I was listening to. This was Islamic teaching on the Islamic regulations for fasting. And it was a list of do's and don'ts and ceremonies. I thought, this is fascinating. What a providential occasion. It was, if you eat this on this day, you keep the fast. But if you eat this on that day, you do not keep the fast. If you don't eat this, and if you don't eat that, you have sufficiently kept the fast. But if you do eat this on this day, that is okay. But if you do eat this at this time, that is not okay. You have not kept the fast. And it went on and on and on. And finally, I mean, I'm paying for the ride, so I interrupted and I said, oh, this is interesting. Let's talk more about this. And I said, I just preached about the Christian view of fasting and was interested and I talked about the gospel and that Jesus Christ came to free us from external ceremonies and burdens like this to give us freedom in Christ from these external ceremonial conformity and I sent him a link to the sermon I have no idea whether he listened or not I doubt it Uh, but it was an opportunity to share the the vast difference So for the Jews, also for Muslims, all of these things are about external ceremony. I'm I'm sure they want some sort of sincerity. I'm not saying they don't. But what I'm saying is Jesus cuts through that and says, if you have the external ceremony and don't have the heart, you have nothing at all. In fact, you have something worse than nothing. You have hypocrisy. You have something negative. Well, the same principle is true about the Sabbath. The endless ceremonial rules of restrictions, what we can and cannot do, what we should and should not do, all of those miss the point. To focus on prohibitions and permissions is exhausting. It's all restriction and no access. That's what the Pharisees are doing. They're focusing on the prohibitions. But Jesus wants to shift our view to Sabbath's purpose. And so the question we have to ask is, how does Jesus tell us about what the Sabbath's purpose is? And so that moves us to our next section in verses 3 through 5, the purpose of the Sabbath. What the Bible teaches on the whole is that the entire Sabbath day should be set apart for worship, both public and private worship, except for what must be taken up in duties of necessity or mercy. When we talk about necessity, we're talking about something that I need, bodily speaking. Um, It's okay to eat. uh, It's okay to sleep. It's okay to take care of your basic bodily needs. And when we're talking about mercy, we're talking about caring for other people's needs. Again, someone who has a major injury, we shouldn't just say, well, come back tomorrow. I know you're bleeding out, but let's let's try to just wait until tomorrow and then you can be healed. That's not at all what the Sabbath is about. We should care for others' needs. But Jesus wants us to see that this emphasis on the necessities of our own body and showing mercy to others' bodies is very important. In fact, so important that it was never excluded from the Sabbath. What Jesus does is he gives us two examples from the law to show us the true meaning of the Sabbath. That The Sabbath always had in view mercy and worship for the sake of meeting with God. Those are the two biggest things we need. We need God to care for our physical needs and we need God to care for our spiritual needs, particularly through worship. And Jesus shows us that even if you look at the Old Testament, this isn't something new that Jesus is doing. He's restoring and recovering what the Old Testament truly taught about the Sabbath, that the Pharisees had twisted and perverted. So we look at verses 3 and 4. Jesus said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Well, Jesus is here referring to a story from 1 Samuel 21. And it's not particularly a story about the Sabbath, although the changing of the bread of the presence would have happened on the Sabbath. What happened was the Levitical priests would would carry in the showbread or the bread of the presence and they'd bake it hot and fresh and bring it into the holy presence of God in the tabernacle, the holy place of God. And they would take, the bread that had been left there the previous Sabbath day, this week old bread, and they would take it out of the holy presence of God. And because it had been in the holy presence of God, it was holy. And so God had commanded only priests should eat this. Now Jesus is, again, not so much appealing to a Sabbath law. He is dealing with a ceremonial law that addressed the holiness of things that are used in the tabernacle. So this was a very real commandment that God said only the priests should eat of this. But if you know the story from 1 Samuel 21, David and his men are fleeing from Saul, and they arrive at the tabernacle, and they are hungry. And they ask the priest uh, for food, and they ask him, uh, Ahimelech, if there's anything that they can eat. And Ahimelech says he doesn't have anything on bread on hand except for the bread of the presence. But he offers that to David and his men, and he offers that, and they eat of that. And Jesus says that that was lawful to do. And it was lawful to do. Now, was that ceremony, was that law important? Yes, it was important to to separate the difference, to show God's people the separation and the difference between what is holy and what is common. Common cannot eat of what is holy. The priests were set apart as holy. That's why they could eat of this bread. Common people normally should not, but what Jesus is doing is showing how even in the midst of that, mercy, meeting the bodily needs of David and his men was more important than that particular ceremonial law. It was lawful and it was in accord with God's purposes for David and his men to eat this bread if there was nothing else on hand. Now, two caveats, two important things for us to think. First of all, Jesus is not saying it's okay to break the law. He's not condoning breaking the law. In fact, he and his disciples are not breaking the law when his disciples pluck the heads of grain here. Jesus is not showing us how to break the law lawfully. He is showing us how the whole law, in all of its pieces and its parts, works together. It all fits together. And there are principles and purposes that, if you understand them, help to answer all of these questions about the do's and the don'ts on a given day or in a given situation. But the second caveat, and I think this is maybe... um, Secondary to the actual passage, but I think it's very important to bring out in our day. There are limits to this. If you look back at 1 Samuel 21, there was one requirement uh, that the priest Ahimelech gave. He says, So long as your men have kept themselves from women. He was talking about sexual purity. So that's important today because if, if you ever hear people talking about some of these ceremonial arguments, and then they make a theological claim that just as Jesus set aside some ceremonial requirements concerning fasting and concerning the Sabbath, etc., so also God is setting aside various standards of sexual morality. Those are being set aside as well. Understand that even in this passage, the one requirement for eating the bread of the presence is that you could not be sexually impure. And so that's very important for us to understand. Jesus did set aside the ceremonial regulations concerning the tabernacle and the Sabbath and things like that, but that in no way means that he set aside the moral, abiding, enduring sexual laws that God gives to regulate his people's behavior in that area. What Jesus is saying as a whole is that the Pharisees are not understanding one of the main purposes of the Sabbath, namely that the point of the Sabbath was for God to be merciful to his people. Now, if you if you read back through the text of the fourth commandment, which we did earlier, mercy is a part of the explanation of the Sabbath. You are to rest, but not just you. Uh, good Sabbath keeping doesn't mean I kick up my heels while I have arranged all of my servants to meet my every need and cater to me in any way I think, I'm really restful, so I'm really getting Sabbath today. No, the, the the law says it's not just you. It's you. It's your son. It's your daughter. It's your male servant. It's your female servant. It's your animals in your midst. None of these shall do work. Now, what did that mean? Well, in the context, when everyone worked tirelessly all the time, when there wasn't paid vacation and whatever else, this was a provision of mercy for people to get rest. Rest wasn't the goal. It wasn't the ultimate goal, it was a means then to an end so they could be rest and be refreshed in some sense, but the bigger goal was so that they could rest, and that they could have a day to worship the Lord, to be reconciled to the Lord through their mercy or their worship. But the Pharisees looked only at the restrictions. The rest, the restrictions of rest helped you to get to the goal, the purpose of access to God, but the Pharisees only looked at the prohibitions, they did not understand the place of mercy which is why they condemned the disciples for meeting their bodily needs by plucking heads of grain and eating. So that's the first thing that Jesus is showing us, that we rest from our labor and allow others to do so in order to show mercy to, for example, hungry people. That's the first thing Jesus shows us when he points to, again, not something that he is doing new, but he's pointing to the Old Testament. The second law that Jesus points to is another ceremonial law that concerns the, but this time that concerns the temple in verse 5. Uh, Jesus says or have you not read in the law how on the sabbath the priests in the temple profane the sabbath and are guiltless Well if the previous example Jesus was talking about the purpose of mercy that's bound up in the sabbath now Jesus is talking about the ultimate purpose of the sabbath the ultimate purpose of the sabbath is worship And what he was saying was that every sabbath the priests would labor hard in the temple Now I I'm a pastor The Lord's day is not my day off. The Sabbath day is not my day off. Uh, this is my Sabbath too. I take a day off on a different day. I take a day off on Friday. That's my day off. It's not my Sabbath. This is the Sabbath, and I work very hard. But I will tell you, I do not work physically hard, as, nearly as hard as the priest did. Because we're talking about taking giant sides of beef and slaughtering them and throwing them up on, on the altar to, to, to be offered as sacrifices. It was incredibly tiring, um, grueling work. And Jesus says, the law actually commands that hard work. If the whole point of the Sabbath is to rest, then the chief offenders are the priests who every week are slinging around sides of beef to get it on the altar and offer it up as a sacrifice. How then can the law contradict itself? It's a powerful argument. The restrictions, the prohibitions are not the purpose of the Sabbath. Those things are a mean to the end of access, access to God. Now this morning, the Lord providentially gave me a test case. It didn't snow uh, on the Sabbath. The Lord um, did not send much snow right here, but where I lived, I got about three to four inches. And I woke up and I looked at it and I thought, certainly on the morning I'm preaching on the Sabbath, this happens. Now, did I hesitate for a moment to shovel my driveway so that my family and I could get out safely to get to worship? Well, if I'm obsessing about, boy, To calculate how much exertion am I going to give? How much, you know, where does this carry the two? If I'm thinking about all of those things, then almost certainly that would have been out of bounds. But if I recognize the purpose is worshiping with God's people, and this is an impediment to that, well, you take care of it, you deal with it. And Jesus is going to talk about that more in the passage that we look at next time. But when the purpose is clear, everything starts to fall into place. You start to fully understand how to walk in this, rather than obsessing on the restrictions themselves, we have to look at the purpose and let that answer all of our questions. Jesus then, more than pointing back to the Old Testament, isn't satisfied to that. He wants to show that the Pharisees have thoroughly misunderstood the law, and he's pointing to the Old Testament to, to prove that. But not of that, Jesus actually takes this further. Jesus doesn't just restore the law, although he does that, now he progresses the law concerning the Old Testament Sabbath. He shows us the true fulfillment of what the Sabbath offers us in this third section, the progression of the Sabbath. In verse six, Jesus says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Now, one commentator, R.T. France, says that it is hard to overestimate the shock value of this pronouncement. Because in Jesus' day, and really if you read the entire Old Testament, opposition to the temple was understood as treason. And Jesus was expressing something greater than the temple is here. He is speaking treasonously. Indeed, this kind of a claim as well as the claim that he could tear down the temple and on three days raise that temple up again, these were going to be some of the main charges that were brought against him in his trial that would ultimately lead to his crucifixion. Jesus is walking on dangerous territory here. He's walking on thin ice and he just treads right across it. Of course, our Lord can walk on water. And so Jesus is telling us that, the, that what has arrived is himself and his kingdom. And so, much more than what we learn from the tabernacle, much more than what we learn from the temple, Jesus is saying he is the one who brings all of this into perfect clarity and focus. And so, in verse 7, he says this, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. The Pharisees were focused on the external prohibitions, sacrifice. And so, because of this, they miss the internal purpose, the mercy that God intends from His Sabbath. And therefore, they judge Jesus' disciples by a wrong standard. They condemned the guiltless. Whether we are mercifully trying to meet people's bodily needs, their emergency bodily needs, or whether we are uh, mercifully meeting their spiritual needs in worship, the point of the Sabbath is to give people an opportunity for human beings to be what God created us to be to glorify God, and to enjoy him now and forevermore. Finally, in verse 8, Jesus puts this all together. He says, for the Son of Man, and Jesus is very clearly speaking of himself, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, but I hope you can see the progression here. He is not relaxing the Sabbath. He is actually bringing it to its full fulfillment, He is showing exactly what it means for him to be the Lord of the Sabbath. By Old Testament precedence, he restores access to God according to the purpose, not according to the prohibitions of the Sabbath. And secondarily, he claims Sabbath as the means by which he will give his people his rest. Sabbath is still, it remains a blessing from God for us to enjoy Lord's Day by Lord's Day. You know, um... Sometimes, as in the example I gave at the beginning of the sermon, in terms of the United States government, uh, the restrictions sort of increase over time, and those accordingly decrease our access, and that's certainly what was happening in Jesus' day. But other times, as we think about how to start to apply this, it's important to recognize that a certain amount of effort is important to, to actually maximize the joy of our access. You know, before our vacation last week, my wife and I and our family went to Kansas City. Um, My wife and I sat down and put together a plan of the things that we're going to do. And and by that, I mean my wife sat down and created a plan. And I said, yes, that sounds great of what we are going to do. She's far better at that than I am. I want to give her credit for the great time we had in Kansas City. And and we, again, I'm using that we loosely, royal we, uh, drafted, uh, we redrafted, we revised a schedule of what we were going to do. We checked the hours, we looked at location and distances of where we would have to go. We made reservations, we bought tickets, we we gathered up supplies. There was a lot of effort in that. There was a lot of work involved in that. And so we put together this plan, this roadmap where we were going to go. Did we feel enslaved by that plan? Well, no, not at all. There's a, a plan that we made to, not to try to restrict ourselves from things that we could not do. At no time did we think about, okay, what are the laws of Kansas City? Maybe we should rob a bank. No, cross that off. That's against the law. At no time did we think about that. That was assumed. Our plan was for maximizing the joy of all that we could do in Kansas City. And we need to think about Sabbath like that. Not so much thinking about what can I and what can't I do. But to think about the purpose, what has God given to us? What kind of joy can we squeeze out of this day as God gives us special, holy access to Him? You know, the old theologians thought about this a lot. One of the best books that I've read on the Sabbath has, the, second sec- the first section is theological, the second section is practical. It's over 100 pages of this pastor's advice about how to squeeze every drop of joy from the Sabbath possible. Now, I I don't even want to tell you the name of this book because it would be so overwhelming in a modern context that we just aren't even ready for thinking like that. But their issue is they weren't legalistic about it. They looked forward to this day every week. They looked forward to this day every week and they made a plan for it. They say, if God really is going to give me delight, if he really is going to teach me to delight in him, I want to be ready for it. I want to be prepared for it. I don't want to have all of the works and the recreations of this world holding me back. I want to delight in God. So our application today is this. Make progress in learning to call the Sabbath a delight. You know, as a pastor, I get so many questions about the Sabbath, and I love these questions. I love when people start to seriously think about Sabbath. Uh, so often these questions start with dealing with, can I do this? Can't I do that? And, and those questions, uh, although they are important, I, I think as I've tried to show what Jesus is showing us here, they really start the conversation from the wrong angle. That can't be the direction that we talk about this. Jesus does not want us to obsess about ceremonial outward details. The focus is not on the restrictions, or on the prohibitions. The focus is rather on the purpose on the access, the relationship that we have with God. Yes, certain things are inappropriate on the Sabbath. They are wrong on the Sabbath, but not because they run afoul of a particular set of prohibitions. It's because they keep us from enjoying the purpose. Jesus teaches us this great goal. He wants us to grasp the purpose of the Sabbath, and he wants us to understand and have some diligence in trying to call the Sabbath a delight, to delight in God, to seek this special access we have to him on this holy day. So who then would benefit from this? Who should care about the Sabbath? Who should desire this access? Well, what Jesus says in this passage and before is that if you labor and are heavy laden, if you are searching for rest for your souls, the Lord of the Sabbath is for you. If you were seeking to increase your joy and delight in God, Isaiah 58 says, call the Sabbath a delight. If you were zealous to show mercy to your neighbor, one of the greatest mercies you can do is by refraining from asking them to work and by rather inviting them to come with us as we worship and enjoy the Lord together. If you are under the lordship of Jesus Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath, then he made the Sabbath for you. Not you for the Sabbath, for the restrictions, but you were made so that the Sabbath could be made for you. Jesus takes the Sabbath seriously. He claims lordship over the Sabbath. Jesus hates the legalistic perversion of the Sabbath, but he loves its true purpose because Jesus loves mercy. He loves meeting the needs of his people. I understand some of you are in careers or are training for careers where you may have to work on the Sabbath in terms of emergency services, in terms of medical providers. Again, we can't let crime go on on Sundays, we can't let people bleed out on the Lord's day. Jesus says that's okay. That is a way to, to to take care of your neighbor. Jesus loves mercy. What he would tell you then is uh, don't then do that every Sunday. You want to try to find ways to be here as often as you can. Maybe you're in a career that, that forces you to work on the Sabbath sometimes. We'll talk about this more next week. What do we do when our sheep has fallen into a pit? But what Jesus tells us, you may need to think about changing a career, thinking about how you work. If your priority is indeed the Sabbath, yes, there are certain things that you necessarily must do, but the mercy, the necessity that Jesus wants us to see starts with our body and ends in the spiritual blessings that we have by being here in worship. Because not only does Jesus love mercy, but he loves worship. He wants to protect and preserve this day that God has set apart as holy, where he will meet with his people in public and private and family worship. He wants us to spend the entire day devoted to him. The application today then isn't about making a list of do's and don'ts. It's rather to refocus on the purpose of the Sabbath, on mercy and on worship. And furthermore, to learn to treasure that purpose in our hearts, When we start asking about do's and don'ts, what we're really asking is, how far is too far? How much can I break the Sabbath before it's too much breaking of the Sabbath? And that is what the Bible calls legalism. It will eventually harden you against others and harden you against God. But I understand that it's impossible for us to be perfect. Even if you could perfectly organize your life according to a principle of rest, even there that wouldn't totally touch your heart. That your mind would still wander, your heart would still fail, your old habits would still be knocking at the door hard for you to break. Which is why the application that I want us to think about is how can we make progress in learning to call the Sabbath a delight. I understand we're going to fall short. I understand we're not going to do this perfectly, but we never seek to stop making progress in the other areas, according to the other Ten Commandments. Why then when we stop trying to make progress on this one? This week, can you learn to delight in the Lord more than the last Lord's Day? By God's grace, could you call the Sabbath a delight in ways where you begin to treasure and delight in the Lord more than you did in the past? You know, it's in this context that we gather in the morning to worship. And I would also remind you, again, we have an evening service this very night, in part because it's so difficult to keep the Sabbath. It is hard to set the entire day apart as holy to the Lord's purposes. Gathering for evening worship then is an act of mercy to direct you to the Lord of the Sabbath in body and soul so that you might increase your delight in him so that he will give you rest for your souls and I would invite you to come back tonight as we gather in that context because this is the day that the Lord has made That's about the Sabbath. That's about not only the old covenant Sabbath, but the way that the the Sabbath was redirected and reframed and refocused in the New Testament. Not according to the principle of the first creation, that the Lord rested on the seventh day, but according to the principle of the new creation, that on the first day of the week, our Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And we gather once a week, week by week, to commemorate that. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us then rejoice and be glad in it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would increase our joy. I pray that you would increase our delight in you, not by keeping rules, by observing prohibitions and regulations, but that whatever things we have to cut out of our life today would all be a means to an end of delighting in you, of calling the Sabbath a true delight. Father, we pray all of this asking that you would indeed meet with us by your spirit, that you would indeed give us joy in Jesus this day as every Lord's day, and that this week would be both the pinnacle of our week and the refuge for our weary souls. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.